Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the fourth chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, which would be page 628 and 29 in the church Bibles. We're going to read beginning in verse 28 to the end of the chapter, and I think we should be able to be through, Lord willing, this morning. And in just a moment, we'll read the, I'll read the Bible and we'll pray and ask God for his help to get started. Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal resident by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. And may God give us understanding of it. A brief prayer, please. Father, it is in moments like these where we realize, thankfully, that you never leave us alone. So we thank you that you've given us your word, which contains all the truth we need for faith and life. You've given us your Holy Spirit who empowers us for ministry and obedience and sustains us. You've given us your Son who alone enables us to stand uncondemned before you and before others. And you have given us each other to encourage our gospel efforts and to live lives soaked in gospel truth and in a manner worthy of Christ's sacrifice and love. So please help us now, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we study your word. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, in this chapter 4, we have discovered that Nebuchadnezzar is writing his testimony. You'll see this if your Bible's open, verse 1. He's writing it to the whole wide world so that the whole wide world will come to know his God. In other words, this is a good letter. This is an evangelistic letter. Remember that. This is good news from a, from a man who happens to be the most powerful man in the world at that time who has been transformed by the very God of a nation he conquered. 
And so he says in verse 2, it is my pleasure, I just love that, it is my pleasure to tell you how I received the total beat down from God. But he doesn't actually say that, does he? But he says, signs and wonders. Nevertheless, the Most High has changed me. In other words, the letter begins with the bad news of his condition, but it ends with the good news of his transformation by the discipline and gracious hand of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar explains how he came to understand what he needed to understand. This is verse 17. The Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 35b, the Most High God does where he, what he pleases everywhere, heaven, earth. Verse 37, everything God does is right and all his ways are just and true. And those who walk in pride, in other words, those who disagree with this truth, God is able to humble. In essence, the king needed to realize All the successes he had known, every one of his victories, all of his wealth, all of his expansion, all of his position was only on account of God making it so. And what is true of him, loved ones, is equally true of all of us here this morning, whether we are in or outside of Christ, that whatever comes to us, whatever we hold, whatever we have, it is not by chance. Whoever our leaders are, it is not by chance, but comes by chance. Or through God's hand. Consequently, we learned, verse 4, that when all was well in King Nebuchadnezzar's golden years of ease and prosperity, God sent a dream. And the dream, verse 5, made him afraid. And it reminds us that prosperity is not a wide enough blanket to keep us from feeling or keep us feeling safe. And that ease is not a soft enough bed to keep us from fear. Now certainly prosperity and ease will promise us that. And it may give us a night or two of that. But not a lifetime. And so for the second time we learn that God's sovereignty extends even to the dream patterns of kings. So his dream concentrated on a tree. And verse 22 Nebuchadnezzar was told he was that tree. And of course, the problem was, and I'm going to sound like Dr. Seuss, the problem was, as we shall soon see, is that Nebuchadnezzar thought and lived like he was the tree of life, that he was a self-planted tree, and that all his ways were just and right, and he was the master of his fate, and he was the captain of his ship, and he would call his own shots, and he was the reason why things were going so, so well, and so he would live by his own rules. But of course, since there is a God who rules, all those thoughts were highly irrational, and he would be left with the fallout for a time of his rebellion And his pride. Okay then. To our first point. If you look at the back of the worship folder. You'll see it there. Daniel's reaction. And again if your Bible's open. You'll see that Daniel's reaction to the dream. Is actually akin to Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Verse 5. Verse 19. They are both terrified. So you have the king. Who doesn't know what's going on. And he's terrified. And you have Daniel who's very clear. On what's going on. And he's also terrified terrified. Now, now what is happening here? Well, clearly Daniel has a fondness for this king. So he shows his readers, his original readers, and every reader throughout history, 
that we must long for God to have compassion on world leaders, just like Daniel, and especially wicked, pride-filled world leaders, and we must appeal to their humanness and not just their sinfulness. And so Daniel shows us in 30 years of day-to-day service to this wicked, pride-filled king that Daniel loves him and he cares for him. He cares about this man in power who abuses and mishandles power. And and Daniel treats this older man, because there's about a 20-year difference roughly between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel treats this older man as we could imagine he would treat his father. (laughs) Verse 19b, oh dad, as messed up as you are, I wish this dream was for your enemies and your adversaries. Oh dad, this dream makes me afraid for you. So loved ones, think. There is no sense of immediate delight on the part of Daniel to pronounce judgment on this king. There's no sense of a kind of grim vindictiveness here by Daniel. There's nothing that comes out of the text that Daniel is so glad, you know, that he can finally stick it to the king. You know, I've been in this miserable position for so long and look where you've put me and look what you did to my people and look what you tried to do to my three friends a few decades ago. You're going to get it and I get to watch. No, says Daniel. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice or the Lord will see and disapprove. When, when our national election results were coming in late Tuesday evening, whatever side we were on, I sure hope we were not gloating. Loved ones, I've been telling you this for many weeks now. Daniel is an Old Testament picture of Jesus. And Jesus weeps for his enemies. He doesn't mock them. And Jesus dies for his enemies. Which every one of us, according to Ephesians 2, in this room, either we we were or we are an enemy of Christ. Until what? Until God's grace came. And God's grace enabled us, changed our heart, regenerated our heart, so that we could be his, or one day, please God, be his. And Jesus taught us to love our enemies. This isn't kitty stuff. This is adult Christianity. Pray for those who persecute you. In fact, listen to the words of Jesus, Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 32 and following. If you love those who love you, big deal. What, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You don't need spiritual power to love people who love you. And if you do good to those who are good to you, big deal. What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. People without Christ can do that. So Jesus goes on, do this. Then your reward will be great and you will be children. Listen to what Jesus says. You will be children of the Most High. Same exact phrase in Daniel 4. The Most High God. It's been used at least six times. The Most High. Okay, what is the Most High like? Well, he is kind to the ungrateful and he is kind to the wicked. And then Jesus says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Are we merciful? Daniel is. He would not violate God's truth. So he is kind to this evil king. Oh, king, I'm going to tell you what you you asked, but I wish it wasn't for you. I wish it was for someone else. Now, in this, listen carefully, Daniel's compassion doesn't change his interpretation. 
Nor does his compassion remove the declaration that he has to give. But his compassion, which will, which will mark him here and mark him all throughout this book, is notable. And his compassion is the way of our master. Therefore, since Jesus is Lord, it must be our way too. So can I tell you, after thinking about Daniel chapter 4 and thinking through the election just a little bit, I came up with this thought. Is it wrong to say that we have no right to say, if we did, slanderous things about these candidates, nor our own president, and we had no right to make or pronounce judgments on them publicly, especially when they would disagree with our personal points of view? I mean, expressing our beliefs, that's one thing. Dealing with facts, that's one thing. And we should do that. But trashing, thrashing, And slandering, especially since they can't defend themselves and gloating over our leaders as Christians? I don't think that ought ever to be. We are citizens of heaven first. And I learned this from a little boy this week, to be real honest with you. We are citizens of heaven first. And then we are citizens of this nation. Therefore, says 1 Peter 2.13. This is the, the, the message translation. Make, make the master proud of you. By being good citizens. Respect the authorities. Whatever their level. They are God's emissaries for keeping order. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. Over the past eight years, our current presidents, he he has suffered so much hate. And he has suffered a whole lot of name calling. Especially if you would in social media as if that would make it okay. And maybe even from those who name the name of Christ. Yet Christ Jesus beckons us to love. What we might deep in our hearts confess. We could easily, easily hate. Now, follow Daniel's rationale. If God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes, and he is. Then Nebuchadnezzar is there because God has placed him there. And because I am a servant of God, Daniel would say, I must treat him as God's word says to treat him and serve him well and in a God-exalting way. And loved ones, we know that Daniel chapter 1 verse 17 is filled with knowledge and understanding given to him by God. We know he has wisdom, filled with wisdom, chapter 1 verse 20. And Daniel at the end of chapter 1, we're told, given a few more graces. So how does a man of God, as we have in Daniel, a picture of Christ, full of God's wisdom, full of God's knowledge and understanding. How does he treat a king who's a bad king and he's doing bad things and yet was given his post as part of God's plan to to save the world, to tell the world of his power. Here it is. You ready? It's pretty simple. Oh, king, (laughs) I wish this dream wasn't for you. Please, please repent and not Here's my chance. Get him out of here, God. He doesn't deserve it. Why why doesn't Daniel do that? Because. Because Daniel knows. God didn't put Daniel in the first chair. God put Daniel in a lower chair. And there is a difference. And Daniel understands the difference. And the one thing which the king did not do, 
is the thing that Daniel does. Daniel hides God's word in his heart in order that he will not sin against God, but also sin against the king. Well, why is that true? Well, verse 37, all God's ways are just and true. And God's way right here is through this wicked king to tell the world of God's greatness and his glory and his power. Now, when I got through writing that around Thursday afternoon, somewhere one or two o'clock, this is the first thought that came to my mind. It was Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who is, who's is known the mind of the Lord? Who would set things up this way? I mean, we wouldn't do that. Who's been God's counselor? For from God and through God and for God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. And the reply of the king, verse 19b, very lovely, don't you think? Daniel, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Just tell me. That's the reaction. Second point, interpretation, verse 24. Pretty straightforward, right? There is no non-directive counseling on the part of Daniel. The tree is you, O king. Verse 24, you'll be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. you eat the grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, an indefinite but complete period of time will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge, king, that heaven rules. Okay, that's the interpretation. And after this interpretation, listen to what Daniel says, verse 27. Okay, king, listen well. There's, there's opportunity here. Here's his appeal. Verse 27. Renounce your sins by practicing righteousness and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be, well be that your prosperity will Continue. Now, how does Daniel know that? How does he know that it may well be that your prosperity will continue? Because Daniel knows his God. Daniel knows his Old Testament. Daniel has been hiding God's word in his heart. And he knows that the God of the Bible is a merciful, merciful God. So you have the pronouncement of judgment. We get that. And there's going to be the execution. We get that. But in and out of the story is the mercy of God in the heart of it all. There's an old hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, that has the line, With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. Is that not our story? Is that not our story? You see, loved ones, this is how the God of the Bible works. Another hymn, Father-like he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hand he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes, especially sin and its penalty. And it's power. And one day, praise God, it's presence. So there's no grim vindictiveness here on the part of God or Daniel. Here is opportunity. Therefore, Daniel says to the king, repent while the dream is just a dream. Isn't that good? Repent while the dream is just a dream. And it's not a reality yet. When Paul was preaching to Agrippa, actually he was explaining to King Agrippa what he was preaching. And he says, Acts 26, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Nebuchadnezzar, repent. Turn from your wrong thinking and show this, Nebuchadnezzar, by better living. Do what is right. It's always clear what is right. 
and be kind, and you see it there, be kind to the oppressed. Now, the Aramaic word translates here to the poor and the needy. Okay, so now we got a little bit of insight into this king. This king did not give a rip about the poor and the needy at all. He treated them, you ready? He treated them like cattle. It's going to happen to the king in a moment or two. It's going to be treated like cattle. Bible history, world history, tells us that Nebuchadnezzar built this empire with the sweat of slave labor. And God will not let that stand. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 and 19. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness. His upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them right for their labor. He said, this is the king, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Verse 15, this is God. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? No. Are you kidding me? That's what this is all about? Verse 17, but your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain and on oppression and extortion. What is extortion? Squeezing every last drop of life from one person so you can use them on the cheap and have more for yourself and call it good business. Call it wise financial planning. And that was this king. 48 buildings uncovered so far by archaeologists with Nebuchadnezzar's seal on them. Three huge kingdom palaces. One palace wasn't enough. And one of the palaces was the hanging gardens, which were known as the seventh wonder of the world, right? By the Greeks. We all know what the eighth wonder of the world is. King Kong, right? This was, thank you, this was the seventh wonder of the world. 17 religious temples built by Nebuchadnezzar. Two great walls surrounding the city. In fact, the outer wall was so wide that you could go two uh, chariots side by side or in different directions. That's how huge this wall was. And it was done, the grunt work was done, the back-altering work was done by slave labor, of which some of them were his own people. You get that? That's not a pretty picture. But look, loved ones, look how merciful God is here. He's making a wonderful offering. Look at the good news. Nebuchadnezzar, just repent. Just turn from this. And there's a good chance God will extend, literally, God will extend your ease. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? All that and all he needs to do and, and he'll... Yet, verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Why? Well, two reasons, chiefly. He rejected Daniel's sermon, didn't he? He didn't listen at all to what Daniel was saying. In verse 29, God was merciful, merciful, gives him 12 months to think about the sermon, but the reality never, never fell upon him. Why did God give him so long? Because God is so Slow to chide and quick to bless, says the hymn writer. This is the, this is the kind of God he is. This is it not, not true? In our sin, is, is God not slow to chide and quick to bless? Could he bring the hammer down? I mean, could he? He could. The one sin, the 1,000 sin. Paul would marvel at God's grace. Romans 2, he says it to the church in Rome. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience? Does this bother you? 
not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And you think about this, the reason you're still alive, the reason you're within earshot of the gospel, the reason the call of God to turn away from your rebellious heart and bow down to his majesty is only on account of God's kindness, God's mercy. The reason why you keep hearing the gospel is God's mercy. And if not, Romans 2 ends, you're going to store up wrath on that great and terrible day. You see, that is why, in part, why, why Daniel's reaction to the dream wasn't, well, it's about time, God, get him and get him out of here. No, but it's, oh, king, repent. There could be a way out of this. First reason, he, he, he didn't heed God's word. He didn't listen to the sermon of Daniel. Second reason, he didn't hide God's word in his heart, did he? No, Daniel's word to the king was the word of God. But then again, verse 29, you see it there? When he was walking around on the roof of his royal palace, which is a very, very dangerous thing for kings to do in the Old Testament, right? King David, one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. He saw a woman bathing. He's done. Verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built by my power and for the glory of my majesty? So you get this scene. He's playing his favorite music. He's got his his favorite beverage in his hand, and he's strutting. By the way, I Googled this morning songs for strutting. There's actually songs you can Google for strutting. I do not recommend them, but there are songs. If you want to strut, look them up, and you can strut, but be careful. And, you know, he's forgotten all this dream stuff. I mean, this Daniel's word from God is just this sermon stuff. He does this, and then I'll do that, and it just goes on and on and on. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. This is what Peter's, to Peter, right? Scoffers. Where is the return of Christ? Where is it going to happen? Where is the promise of his coming? It's not going to happen. I said, it will happen. I mean, some of us are longing for that day. It's going to happen. And at that point, God says enough. Verse 31, the words were still on his lips when the voice came from heaven and pronounced and executed God's judgment. Verse 33, immediately what God had said would happen, happened. Now listen carefully. For this king, who is somewhere now in his mid to late 60s, and yet for those roughly 60 to 70 years, he had not yet known God's anger and his judgment on his sin. Not like this. And because Nebuchadnezzar didn't hide God's word from Daniel in his heart, and because he didn't hold it in his head, he looked with his eyes, top of his palace, he thought with his mind, and he went, this is great. And after he went, this is great, he went, hey, 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 look what I've done. And then God said, enough. And ended his way of life, which had served him well, but was wrong, As God determined now, somewhere in the kings, mid to late 60s, this is going to stop. The wheels of God's justice grind slow, but they will grind exceedingly fine. So when the king went, and he went, hey, 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 God went enough. Now why such a horrible punishment? 
You see it there, verse 31, verse 33, his authority gone, no people around him, he's alone, he's going to have to eat like a cow, no shelter, his mind and body let go, he's going to behave like a beast, banished, which has always been the result of humanity's sin, banished. Why? Listen to Donald Campbell, I think he'll help us. A woman visiting Switzerland came to a sheepfold on one of her daily walks. Venturing in, she saw the shepherd seated on the ground with his flock around him. Nearby, on a pile of straw, lay a single sheep, which seemed to be suffering. Looking closely, the woman saw that the sheep's leg was broken. Her sympathy went out to the suffering sheep, and she asked the shepherd, How did this happen? And the shepherd said sadly, I broke it myself. You see, of all the sheep in my flock, this was the most wayward. It would not obey my voice. It would not follow when I was leading the flock. On more than one occasion, it wandered to the edge of a perilous cliff. And not only was it disobedient itself, but it was leading other sheep astray. Based on my experience with this kind of sheep, I had to do it. I broke its leg. The next day, I took food and it tried to bite me. After letting it lie low for a couple of days, I went back and it not only eagerly took my food, but licked my hand and showed every sign of submission and affection. And now this sheep is the model sheep of my entire flock. No sheep hears my voice so quickly nor follows me so closely. Instead of leading others away, it is an example of submission and obedience. This sheep learned obedience through its suffering, through me breaking its leg. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with himself. And at this point, he's about ready to be insane. That he who knew luxury and he knew authority and he knew ease and the world knew this, now uh, the effects of his pride are they're beginning to play bare. Wild hair, long nails, deranged, insane. And the world knows this. And the world knows that the Most High God did this. By the way, if you've ever read the biography of Howard Hughes, there's uh, shades of this behavior in Howard Hughes. Long fingernails, uh, matted hair, having lost his mind as his life uh, unfolded. Be not deceived. God is, is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. God takes away. And all God's ways are just and right. Now, if the story ended here, it'd be like, oh, are you kidding me? Really? Because we, if we were thinking and we know that we're Nebuchadnezzar, the truth is right there before us, and sometimes we do not obey the truth. And we need God to be merciful. So let's see this final point, restoration, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes to heaven. Uh, Psalm 111, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And how we answer that question will tell everything about us, right? Where does my help come from? And as you look at the text there, there's no sense that Nebuchadnezzar uh, lifted his head on his own. 
I mean, the punishment was done. Now it's God restoring. This is grace. This is a picture of the gospel and God's first act of restoration. This is regeneration for you to lift up your head. And when you lift up your head, it's all coming back. Your sanity will be restored. My reason was returned to me. I started thinking right because of God's grace, which is the opposite, right? You're, you're going to get involved in Christianity. And people say, you don't, gee, are you kidding me? You're gonna, they're going to ask for your money all the time. They're going to ask you to serve all the time. They're going to ask you to worship all the time. Get out of there quick. And then they tell you that God is sovereign over the whole world. Look at the world. Are you insane? Get out quick. And what do we say to them? Well, one of the things we could say is, no, no, there is a God in heaven, verse 37. And, and those who walk in pride, those who reject this truth, he's able to humble, not to hurt. It's too much us. That's our flesh. But to help. Because you see there, after the king was restored by God's grace, he's back and he's better. Right? And what do people who are happy do? Well, usually happy people sing. Well, what do happy people have been changed by God sing? Well, there you go. You can see that at the end of verse 34. This is a hymn. It's set off. This is his song. His dominion is an eternal dominion. You kind of wonder what the beat would be, but who knows? His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back God's hand. And say to him, are you really going to let Nebuchadnezzar off this easy, God? Are you really going to do that? No one can say to God, what have you done? You see, this is grace. This is great. It humbles humanity and it exalts divinity. Verse 36, look, his old group comes back and they seek him out. But he's brand new and he's better. And remember, remember what God gave to Daniel and his three friends at the end of chapter 2? God gave them a really nice promotion. They went through that terrible stuff. Promotion. And what did God give to the three friends who went through the fiery furnace at the end of chapter 3? God gave them a promotion. What did God, verse 36, what did he give to Nebuchadnezzar? A promotion. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. You just, you just want to say, are you kidding me? Are you really God? Are you really going to treat this guy that good? And all he did was raise his head to heaven and that was by you and he repented and power came? Are you, are, and so what do you say to that? This is what I say to that. God, are you kidding me? Are you going to give me the righteousness of Jesus Christ forever? And I'm still going to sin past my conversion? Are you kidding me? And you know what I think sometimes and you know what I do and you still want to bring me, usher me safely into heaven? Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Now be honest. Be real honest. Would you do that? Would you do that to the king after all that stuff? Think with me. Let's say there's, there's a Mr. or Mrs. X. And you know them really, really well. And for 60, 70 years, they've been evil. And they've been wicked. And they've hurt a lot of people. Maybe because of the pressure they put on people, maybe they caused some early deaths. But, but in their greedy, miserly ways for all those years, their whole life has been gold. Their whole life has been successful. But they're a horrible person. And then you get when that they're diagnosed, diagnosed with a disease, mental, physical disease. 
And that person's world just falls apart. And for seven times, he's a mess. She's weeping. He's crying. She's a broken woman. He's a shell of a man. And you know him. And you know her. And you know how often they've caused you such pain. What are you thinking when, when you get the news? Yes. It's about time. And they, all, they were do, for a long time. and They had it coming. Or, oh, God, no. Please, God, have mercy on them. I've got to get to them and tell them to repent. And let's say God does have mercy on them and gives them a healing and then a huge promotion. And now instead of a gold life, they have a platinum life. In fact, I made up a phrase. God gives them supersonic success. You can use that if you want to. God gives them supersonic success. What would you think about these people? But more importantly, what would you think about God? And how we answer that question tells us everything and tells us if we really, truly understand the gospel and have been actually, truly changed by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Loved ones, listen carefully. Grace, mercy, sovereignty, humility, repentance, compassion on the souls of men and women, that is sanity. That quiets the soul. Insanity, stick it to them, God. After all, I made my way in this world, and so should they. After all, I've been keeping up with the Christian disciplines, and so should they. Let me end the sermon by saying this. If you need to this morning, if you need to, enjoy God's free grace in Jesus. Again, if you need to this morning, enjoy God's free grace in Jesus. And if you need God's free grace in Jesus, I can assure you that Jesus Christ offers that free grace to you right now. Right now. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, even though we are guilty of many, many sins, you did not count them against us, but you counted them against Christ. So we can say with certainty, your grace amazes us. And if there are some here who don't know this grace as of yet, have mercy on them and show them your glory Show them their sin and show them the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe. Amen.